Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, English Candles. The last several episodes have taken a summary look at the beginnings of the Reformation in Europe and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. In the next few episodes, we'll take a look at how the Reformation unfolded across Europe, and we begin with England. The story of the Church of England is an interesting one. The famous, or maybe should say infamous, Henry VIII was King of England when Luther set fire to the kindling of the Reformation. Posturing as a bulwark of Catholic orthodoxy, Henry wrote a refutation of Luther's position in 1521. It was titled Defense of the Seven Sacraments and was rewarded by Pope Leo X with the august title Defender of the Faith. Ironic then that only a decade later, Henry would hijack the English church, oust the Pope as its head, and assume that position himself. What makes the story of these years in England so interesting is the marital and political shenanigans that Henry VIII played. The intrigues played out for the thrones of Spain, France, and England all make for some of the best drama, and many people don't realize that so many of the famous names of history all lived right at this time and knew each other, if not personally, then at least by reputation. If the story was a movie that had been dreamed up by Hollywood, most people would consider it just too far-fetched. Without getting into the minutiae of the details of Henry's multiple marriages, it was his lust for power and desire to produce a son and heir that motivated him to marry, divorce, and remarry, and then do it all over again, repeatedly. Henry persuaded the Pope to allow him to marry his sister-in-law, that is, his dead brother's wife, Catherine of Aragon, herself the daughter of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain, the sponsors of Christopher Columbus. Catherine gave Henry a daughter named Mary, but no sons. So Henry put her aside and married his mistress, the vivacious and opinionated Anne Boleyn. In order to set Catherine aside so he could wed Anne, Henry had to persuade the Pope, who'd taken some persuading to allow him to marry Catherine in the first place, to annul that marriage, saying he ought never have been allowed to marry her in that first place. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, was employed by Henry to put pressure on Rome to grant the annulment. But Pope Clement VII wouldn't budge. So in 1531, Henry announced to the clergy that they were from then on to look to him as the head of the church in England. It's at that point we may say the church in England became the church of England. For the next few years, there was effectively little difference between Roman Catholicism and the English church. But under Cranmer's guidance, the Church of England began a halting process of departure from its Roman past. It seems this departure may be assigned in part to the influence of Anne Boleyn. A woman of astute intellect and firm convictions, she found much merit in the reform position and had a hand in seeing Thomas Cranmer appointed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Cranmer was an interesting figure. He seems in his early years to vacillate in his opinions and comes off as being anything but the stalwart bulldog of Protestant ideals, as a Luther or a Calvin. Yet, he went to the stake at the end of his life rather than recant his most dearly held beliefs. And what he did in the Church of England was truly remarkable. Once the break with Rome came, Cranmer quietly set about to install the Reformation ideals of Calvin in England. 
He didn't do much while Henry VIII sat the throne, but as soon as his reform-minded son Edward became king, he went to work in earnest. Cranmer was born in Nottinghamshire and attended Cambridge, where he was ordained a priest. He threw himself into his studies, becoming an astounding theologian, a man of immense, though not original, learning. In 1520, he joined other scholars who met regularly to discuss Luther's theological revolt on the continent. Cranmer's theological leanings remained merely academic until he was drawn into the politics of his day. In August of 1529, King Henry happened to be in a neighborhood that Cranmer was visiting and ended up conversing with the king. Henry was trying to figure out how to divorce Catherine so he could wed Anne Boleyn. Impressed with Cranmer's reasoning, Henry commanded Cranmer to write a treatise backing the king's right to divorce, then he made Cranmer one of his European ambassadors. It was in this capacity that Cranmer made a trip to Germany, where he met the Lutheran reformer Andreas Osiander and his niece Margaret. Both Osiander's theology and niece, I may say, so appealed to Cranmer that despite his vow to celibacy, he married Margaret in 1532. Because of the complex political situation in England, he kept this marriage a secret. In August of 1532, the aged Archbishop of Canterbury died and by March of the next year, Cranmer was consecrated as its new archbishop. He immediately declared the king's marriage to Catherine void, and the king's previously secret union with Anne Boleyn was valid. Cranmer advocated the policy of royal absolutism, or what is popularly known as the divine right of kings. Cranmer said that his primary duty was to obey the king, who was God's chosen to lead his nation and the church. Time and again in Henry's rocky reign, Cranmer was ordered to support religious policies of which he was personally disapproving, and he always obeyed the king. For this, Cranmer has been labeled a vacillator, a waffler, a leader of uncertain loyalty and fidelity to Jesus as Lord. Well, let's hold off our evaluation until we see his end. In 1536, he became convinced, he said by questionable evidence, that Anne had committed adultery, so he invalidated that marriage. In 1540, he ruled Henry's proposed marriage to Anna Cleves was lawful, and when Henry sought a divorce from her just six months later, Cranmer approved it on the grounds the original marriage was unlawful. We'd be wise to be careful of assigning the archbishop the title of lackey. Yes, his flip-flopping on Henry's marital life is distressing, but given what we know about Henry, what would have happened if Cranmer had opposed the king's wishes? He'd have quickly been shortened by about nine inches, and Henry would have appointed a replacement bishop who gave him what he wanted. Cranmer knew that he had important work to do in reforming the Church of England and understood that he was uniquely positioned to do it. Yeah, Henry VIII was a piece of work, but Cranmer was installing reforms in the church that would make sure future kings couldn't get away with what Henry was getting away with. Though he bent to the king's will regarding his marital state, time and again Cranmer alone of all of Henry's advisors pleaded for the lives of people who had fallen out of royal favor, people like Sir Thomas More, Anne Boleyn, and Thomas Cromwell. He even publicly argued against Henry's six articles, which aimed at moving England back into the Roman church. Then, in an apparent sign of weakness, when the six articles were approved by Parliament, well, he went along with the king's policies. But again, what else could he do? 
Now, some would say that he ought to have stood strong, like Luther did at the Diet of Worms. But if he had, well, it's debatable if the Church of England would have become the Anglican Church. And lest we assume Henry was just a tyrannical, spoiled brat who happened to be king, he intervened on Cranmer's behalf when court politics threatened the archbishop's position and even his life. It was Cranmer that Henry asked for while he was on his deathbed. With Henry's death and his son Edward VI's ascension to the throne in 1547, Cranmer's time finally arrived. The young king's guardian, Edward Seymour, began to make the Church of England determinedly Protestant. Cranmer took the chief role in directing doctrinal matters. He published his homilies in 1547, which required all clergy to preach sermons emphasizing Reformed doctrines. He composed the first Book of Common Prayer, which was only moderately Protestant, in 1549, but then he followed it up in 1552 by a second edition that was more clearly so. Cranmer also produced the 42 Articles a year later. This was a set of doctrinal statements that moved the Church of England even further in a Reformed, and by that I mean Calvinist, direction. These doctrines became critical to the formation of Anglicanism, and the Book of Common Prayer, though revised over the years, still retains to this day Cranmer's distinctive stamp and is used by millions of Anglicans worldwide. When Edward VI died in 1553, Cranmer supported his cousin, the Lady Jane Grey, as the new sovereign. She was even more reform-minded than Edward had been. Edward had changed the rules of succession to ensure that Lady Jane received the crown, and so that his older half-sister Mary Tudor, that daughter of Catherine of Aragon that we talked about earlier, who was a staunch Roman Catholic, couldn't gain the throne. But Jane was deposed after only nine days, and Mary triumphantly entered London. Parliament immediately repealed Henry's and Edward's acts and reintroduced a set of pro-Catholic heresy laws. Mary's government began a relentless campaign against Protestants. Cranmer was charged with treason and imprisoned in November of 1553. After spending nearly two years in confinement, Cranmer was subjected to a long, tedious trial. The foregone verdict was reached in February of 1556. And in a ceremony carefully designed to humiliate, Cranmer was degraded from his church offices and handed over to be burned at the stake. He was just one of thousands of Protestants to know Queen Mary's fury, earning her the title Bloody Mary. Cranmer's long imprisonment and harsh treatment combined to weaken his resolve. Hoping to avoid the stake, he became convinced that he should submit to a Catholic ruler and repudiate his reforms. He signed a document that said, quote, I confess and believe in one holy Catholic visible church. I recognize as its supreme head upon the earth the Bishop of Rome, Pope, and Vicar of Christ, to whom all the faithful are bound subject. Unquote. Even with this confession in hand, the royal court and parliament believed that Cranmer had to be punished for the havoc that he'd wrecked on the church. The plan was still to burn him at the stake, but he'd be allowed to make one more profession of his Catholic faith, and so redeem his soul, though his body would perish in the flames. On the night before his execution, Cranmer was seated in an Oxford cell before a plain wooden desk. Weary now from months of trial, interrogation, and imprisonment, trying to make sense of his life, before him on that table lay a speech that he was to give the next morning, a speech that repudiated his writings that had denied Catholic teaching. But 
Also before him was another speech in which he declared the Pope was Christ's enemy and an antichrist. The question was, which would he give on the morrow? The next morning he was led into a church and when it was his turn to speak, he drew out a piece of paper and began to read. He thanked the people for their prayers and then said, quote, I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or I ever did in my entire life, unquote. Referring then to the recantations that he had signed, he blurted out, quote, all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand are untrue, unquote. Loud murmurs sped through the congregation, but Cranmer continued, quote, And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, but no more words were heard by the crowd because Cranmer was dragged from there to the stake. The fire was kindled and quickly the flame leapt up. Cranmer stretched out his right hand, the one that had written those previous recantations. He put it into the flame and held it there as he said, This hand has offended he died with the words of many of the martyrs, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Within just two years, Elizabeth I ascended the English throne and moved the church back in a Protestant direction, revising Cranmer's 42 articles to 39 and adopting his Book of Common Prayer as the official guide to worship. Today, Anglicanism and its New World counterpart Episcopalianism is the expression of faith for some 50 million people worldwide. As we end this episode, I want to mention two more who lost their lives in Bloody Mary's Purge, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Ridley was Cranmer's chaplain when Archbishop of Canterbury. He became the Bishop of London and helped Cranmer write the Book of Common Prayer. Ridley was instrumental in altering the interior of the churches of England. He replaced the stone altar with a simple wooden table for the serving of communion. He shifted the task of priests from sacramental and sacerdotal work inside a church building to pastoral work outside of it. Hugh Latimer started out as a passionate preacher of Catholicism. When he received a degree in theology in 1524, he delivered a lecture assailing the German Lutheran heir to Luther's legacy, Philip Melanchthon, for his high view of scripture. Among Latimer's listeners was a man by the name of Thomas Bilney leader of the Protestants at Cambridge. After the lecture, Bilney asked Latimer to hear his confession. Believing that his lecture had converted the evangelical, Latimer readily agreed. But the confession was a stealthily worded sermon on the comfort and confidence that the scriptures can bring. Latimer was moved to tears and to Protestantism. Latimer's sermons after that targeted Catholicism and social injustice. He preached boldly daring in 1530 to give a sermon before King Henry VIII that denounced violence as a means of protecting God's word. And for this, he won the king's respect. He became one of Henry's chief advisors after the king's break with Rome. Appointed the Bishop of Worcester, he supported Henry's dissolution of the monasteries. However, when he opposed Henry's retreat from Protestantism in the Six Articles, he was put under house arrest, and it lasted for six years. Freed during the reign of Edward VI, he flourished as one of the Church of England's leading preachers. But with the ascension of Mary, he was again imprisoned, tried, and along with Ridley and Cranmer, condemned to death. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Ridley arrived at the field of execution first. When Latimer arrived, the two embraced, and Ridley said, quote, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it, unquote. 
They both knelt and prayed before listening to an exhortation from a preacher, as was the custom before an execution for heresy. A blacksmith wrapped an iron chain around the waists of Ridley and Latimer. When the wood was lit, Latimer said, quote, Be a good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out, unquote. As the fire rose, Latimer cried out, quote, O Father in heaven, receive my soul, unquote, and died almost immediately. Ridley, however, hung on, with most of his lower body having been burned before he passed from this earth into heaven's waiting arms. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.